Steve Springett is a technologist, husband, father, entrepreneur, and tequila aficionado. He's the creator of the OWASP Dependency Track and Cyclone DX Spec. In this conversation, we begin with the problem of software supply chain risk and the failures of commercial software composition analysis tools. We then go through an extensive list of criteria for purchasing an SCA tool. I've never seen a list like this ever shared anywhere else in the industry. Steve's definitely an insider and in the know when it comes to these types of tools, and this is a detailed checklist of what he looks for when he purchases a software composition analysis tool. We end with a 60-second update on dependency track. This one's a little longer than normal, but I think you'll find it's worth it. We hope you enjoy. Security Journey and the Application Security Podcast are attending Global AppSec DC. Stop by our booth to talk about the podcast or participate in our Battle of the Black Belts laptop sticker contest. We've created unique and amusing stickers, and every few hours we'll have a new battle going on. Just to give you some perspective, the first battle is Daniel versus Johnny from The Karate Kid with a bit of security humor thrown in. If you stop by, we'll even provide you a demo of our culture-influencing security belt program that your developers will love. We look forward to connecting with you at the OWASP Global AppSec DC. The Application Security Podcast. Here we go. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and co-host of said podcast. I'm also joined today by Robert. Hey Robert, how's it going? Hey Chris, really good to be here. And Robert, what is the title that you are going by these days? Oh yes, of course, Uh, Threat Modeling Architect. All right, and today we are joined by a guest who has been on the podcast before, And if you are in the world of OWASP to any degree, then you know who Steve Spring it is. And so we're excited to have Steve back. And right before we jump in and and get into the conversation, I'll mention that Steve first appeared on the podcast in Season 3, Episode 13, where he described dependency check and dependency track. And so if you want to get his backstory, that's where you can find it. Today we're going to jump in. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining us again. Hey, thanks for... Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we want to dive right into the software supply chain deep end. And so I thought, Steve, we could just start by level setting. What is the, the problem that we're actually dealing with here when we talk about software supply chain risk? What does that even mean? Yeah, it's it's it could be a, a lot of different things. Um, but if for organizations that are building their own software, um, software is no longer produced, um, you know, in a way where they're writing every single bit of code. Uh, software is produced uh, using building blocks, using open source and third-party components that already exist uh, that you can leverage and build upon to create something new. So it it uh, allows organizations to 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 get to the market faster by reusing a bunch of these components that already exist, and 
when we're talking about supply chain, uh, incorporating all these third-party and open-source components into your application, you as an organization are essentially taking on risk for software that you didn't write. Um, so that's, you know, for organizations that are building their own applications, whether it's for internal use or um, cloud offerings or maybe the application is, is delivered to somebody else, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about supply chain. It can mean all kinds of other things as well uh, to the point where how is a developer actually producing that software um, to all kinds of other things. But for the sake of this conversation, I think we're just going to stick with, uh, with um, building software. Yeah, and it's important, I think, for folks to realize that whilst all the thinking and, and solutions and things for software supply chain are relatively new, meaning in the last five, seven years is when those solutions have come to the forefront, the general idea of supply chain has existed as long as we've been building products for anything. Right. If you think about a car, a car has a very diverse supply chain where you get uh, some pieces from the tire manufacturer and other pieces from the spark plug manufacturer. And the car builder actually just puts together all those component pieces to get you a car at the end. I think, Steve, what you're saying is in the world of software, that same process is happening. It's just it's all technology. It's all bits and bytes and pieces and libraries and things that are being put together to give me that final product, that car that I can drive off the showroom floor. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. We're not trying to discourage the use of using these re these reusable open source third-party components, what we're trying to do really when we're talking about supply chain risk is really trying to address the, the elephant in the room in, in a lot of cases that organizations don't necessarily know that, you know, they, they assume open source is free. And it's, you know, to, to steal a line from, uh, from Dan Cornell, uh, open source is free as in puppies, not in beer. There, there's certain maintenance and, and certain uh, hygiene that you should probably do if you want your product that's using these components um, to be healthy. Yeah, definitely. That's a great quote as well. I had not heard that before, but uh, free as in puppies, not as in beer. Um, okay, so there is a set of products then that have... And I say products kind of loosely, meaning commercial and open source, that have risen to try to address this problem of supply chain risk. And in the industry, we refer to them as software composition analysis or SCA tools. Steve, what, 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 are, what, what are some things you can tell us about this kind of category of application security tool? Uh, it, first of all, the SCA, the Software Composition Analysis uh, acronym, is is highly misleading, um, and it actually ignores a large and growing percentage of of things that we're actually building today. Uh, so, in terms of supply chain, um, it, it's really not a, a good term to use, but that's kind of what the market research firms have have um, have given us. Um, but in the space, there are a number of commercial vendors uh, with with certain capabilities. There's several open source uh, offerings uh, in the space as well. I, I you know part of one uh, project that that does that, and essentially it's it's kind of a mix between having a product or a, some kind of offering 
that actually does the analysis um, for you uh, regarding, you know, what applications am I building and what components are in that application and, and actually performing that analysis. And then the other piece on top of that is really about the, um, the risk intelligence. How good is this project? How good is this vendor in actually producing some really valuable risk intelligence? Um, so both of those things together really form the basis for a software composition analysis product. Now, when you say risk intelligence, are you meaning how good is the component that I'm using or how good is the final solution that I'm using based on all its component pieces? No, when we're talking about like risk intelligence, uh, we're looking at things like, yes, does it have any known vulnerabilities? These, these are the easy types of questions, right? Does it have any known vulnerabilities? Uh, what is the license? Is my organization um, okay with you know, the license and its terms? Um, is the component out of date? Um, how old is it in terms of age? Um, is it uh, the latest version, but it's still five years old? That might be a red flag. Uh, we're looking at project health. Um, so is the project actively maintained? Do they have committers? Do they answer um, you know, tickets when, they're, uh, when users of that project actually submit them? Do they answer them or just close them? Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of different types of intelligence that kind of go into determining whether or not a component should or should not be used. Um, and the quality of that, of that uh, intelligence uh, varies dramatically uh, across the vendors and, and even into the, to the open source world. Okay, so that helps us to get a perspective on SCA and kind of this type of tools. Now, I guess what is the current state then of this SCA product sets across both commercial and open source. I mean, is, are we in a good place? Are these tools really helpful? Are they doing a good job and doing what they're supposed to do? Or are they just yet another tool with blinky lights and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so as a open source person myself, and, you know, I was the... You know, Jeremy obviously created, Jeremy Long obviously created the dependency check project back in 2012. Uh, I was the first core contributor to that project, but I also had a need for something else but related. So I created the dependency track project, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, I, I've been doing the open source stuff for so long and, and, and it had really been a long time since I evaluated um, what was commercially available. Right, because when I started down this venture in 2012, there really wasn't anything commercially available, um, and now there is. Right now, there's all kinds of things to choose from, and so I recently, literally, just did a a bake off at my own organization, um, and and I heard as kind of being in this field for a while, I, I had a certain expectation, and I knew that no vendor was going to to meet my requirements. Um, but I did have some interesting observations. Um, when we think about some kinds of tools like static analysis tools, like a Fortify or a Veracode or Checkmarks or something, um, typically organizations just use one, 
right? Um, they, they're a Fortify shop or they're a Veracode shop, and that's what they use to scan all of their code. Um, when we think about dynamic analysis, we typically think of um, using multiple tools, right? You, you might use a burp suite, you might use a zap, you might use a Acunetics or AppScan or whatever it is. You might use multiple tools, maybe some manual techniques in there as well to come up with your dynamic analysis results. Unfortunately, uh, today, the SCA market, you really need multiple tools. Uh, that's the current state that we're, that we're in. Um, in terms of organizations actually being um, more versed, more knowledgeable of the problem, I, I, think, I think the media has done a, a really good job of kind of highlighting um, supply chain as an issue. There's been a number of you know, high-profile cases over the last couple of years where you know, it was a supply chain issue that led to a, a massive breach uh, of some sort. Uh, so I think the media has has helped uh, identify the the seriousness of the problem, um, but the tools themselves have a long way to go before, in my opinion, uh, they would be classified as leaders in the space. Uh, we we're really not there yet. Uh, I look at the commercial SCA space as kind of a bucket of capabilities. I have a dozen or more capabilities that I need in my environment. And I might choose one vendor because they have half of those capabilities. I might choose another vendor because they have some overlapping but some unique capabilities. So I'm really looking at multiple vendors now in order to solve this this problem. And even then, um, I, I'm not at a point where I have all my requirements met. So as an industry... First of all, I think dropping SCA would be a good start. Um, <laughs> Just dropping the name, you mean. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Because it's really limiting in scope. And because of that, you know, I think the the a lot of the companies are really just developing to that particular scope and not really truly understanding the breadth of the problem um, and developing solutions for the problem instead of the market research firms. But that's where we're really at today. Uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. We've, we've come a long way, but we have a long uh, way to go. So, well, we could always just choose a new name here. You know, uh, we could just have a, an industry discussion and decide what the new acronym is going to be. Um, it'd have to be something funny. It would have to resolve to something funny when you took the first letter of each of the words. So I guess I, I'm not witty enough to make it up on the fly. I'll have to think about it offline. Um, but I'm curious, though, when you're when you're thinking about this bake off and going through this process, what were that? What was that list of capabilities that you were considering across all the tools? Because I think that'll really help people who, you know, it's, let's be honest, right? Most people who are going to do a bake-off don't have your perspective because you've really been inside of these type of tools and really know how they work. And so I think your list of capabilities would really help somebody else who's brand new to this space and has been given the task of, hey, choose an SCA tool that we're going to deploy for our enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been asked multiple, multiple, multiple times to kind of come up with that list of things that I actually care about. But between day job and wife and kids and, you know, open source commitments, uh, I, I literally just haven't had a chance. So I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. But, um, you know, my list of the things that I care about, I didn't think were necessarily unreasonable. So one is, you know, just having an accurate inventory. 
right? That's first and foremost. Um, and I was really surprised how hard that could actually be with a commercial SEA tool. And this is just, um, just so just to make sure everyone understands. When you say have an accurate inventory, accurate inventory of the applications slash products that exist in the enterprise and have that fed into the tool? Oh, no, no, no. So uh, accurate inventory in terms of, well, yes, I mean, <laughs> uh, you should have an accurate inventory of the applications and assets in your organizations. But no, I'm actually talking about the, the inventory of third-party and open-source components that are being used in a application or all of your applications. Uh, actually, having an accurate inventory was surprisingly difficult hmm. uh, among the various tools. Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons why uh, that was so. But, um, you know, there, there's a couple of different approaches that, that, you know, solutions use to address the inventory problem. There's the binary way. You know, I, I'm looking at this thing and I, I think it's this. <laughs> or the manifest way where, um, you know, you're looking at POMs or package JSONs or something. And this is what I, this is what you told me you have. And both of those are like, I think, and I think, and if you put them together, you have a maybe, <laughs> but you're, you're not to the point where you're, you're actually stating what it is that you actually have. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where the software bill of materials that we can dive into in a little bit, uh, that's where that is really, really important. Uh, but having an accurate inventory, being able to support all the ecosystems and build environments that you actually have, um, Using package management, organizations, uh, even drudgingly, they need to adopt some kind of package management. Managing your dependencies manually in 2019 is just a non-starter. It leads to incredible amounts of risk. Um, if you are looking at inventory, I highly suggest that every organization adopt a package URL specification. Uh, it wasn't created by me, but I'm part of the core working group that's defining what the specification is. It's a universal way to describe packages regardless of what ecosystem they're actually part of. So instead of specifying, you know, uh, talking about Maven Govs and all this other stuff that's very specific to various ecosystems, you just have a package URL and your supply, your inventory, everything references that, uh, which, you know, it's a universal way to describe that. Um, outside of that, the things that I cared about initially uh, were, you know, vulnerability analysis, license identification, whether the component was out of date or not, and whether the component was end-of-life, end-of-support. End-of-life, end-of-support was surprisingly difficult to do. Most vendors don't do it at all. Um, so you could be using the latest version of a component, and you think you are okay, but that version is so old, the project may be moved on. Um, most solutions today don't actually offer that that um, that capability, which is really unfortunate. Um, being able to um, ingest bill of material formats. If you go to any of the commercial SCA um, um, websites, they're talking about bill of materials, yet most of them actually don't support them. So there's a couple bill of material formats. Um, it's really useful to be able to represent your, uh, your inventory, your components in a standardized format that is interchangeable between the various systems. Um, and nothing really does that today. Um, the open source world 
Um, dependency track was the first and currently only solution that, that does it um, both ways. But um, I know uh, Sonotype, for example, from uh, uh, Nexus IQ from Sonotype, they're actually in the process of, of adopting uh, Cyclone DX, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, Black Duck has partial support for SPDX. Um, but for the most part, build materials, even though they are actually advertising them on their websites, the standardized formats aren't actually supported. And when you think about that, it's, it's really interesting, right? If I say I'm, I'm making a web browser, yet I don't actually support like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, can I really say that I have a web browser? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, I think not. Right? <laughs> so, you know, basic things like that are really missing across the, the industry today. Uh, pedigree and provenance is something I really, really care about. And what this refers to is really the love-hate relationship that organizations have with open source. They love to consume the hell out of open source. And they really don't like to contribute back. And what happens in, in a lot of organizations is that they'll use, them, they'll use them, uh, um, an open source thing. It doesn't quite meet their needs. They'll fork it. They'll make some modifications to it. And now we have this new thing, right? And being able to track what that origin component was, uh, being able to track what the differences are uh, in my version that I'm using and who made the commits, what those commits were, is really important. Um, depending on how you actually modify your open source components, depending on whether or not you're using the, the binary method of analysis or the manifest version of analysis, depending on how you modify those components, you may be blind to any license or uh, security risk, uh, depending on how you, how, to, how you modify that. For example, if you're using only manifest analysis and you, chase, and you change the Maven GAV, yeah, you change the group ID, for example. Uh, now, I none of my vulnerability information actually. You know, if I'm using uh, org.apache.tomcat and I change it to org.acme.tomcat, now my vulnerability intelligence stuff doesn't. It doesn't know what that is. Um, and same thing for um, for binary analysis. I, I might be able to identify that originated from Tomcat, but uh, if I'm trying to keep my stuff constantly up to date using dependency bot or, or something like that, dependent dependent bot or, or something like that, now I can't because I've modified it. And if I if I update automatically, now I break my application. So pedigree and provenance are really really important. And is that something that's missing from the commercial tools, our modern yeah. day versions? All, all, all application, uh, all modern SCA uh, tools. Uh, none of them did that today. Uh, a couple of them had it on the roadmap. Uh, most of the vendors weren't even thinking about it, which is really, really unfortunate because that that is the essence of what open source is about. That is the essence of the supply chain problem, and it's completely missing in the SCA space today. Um, there's really, if you look at the, um, I, I encourage everybody to look at the, the Gardner and, and Forrester reports and maybe look at the footnotes in, in some of these and, and see who is actually talking about supply chain versus just SCA. Uh, because the folks who are really understanding this from a supply chain perspective and a holistic supply chain approach I think those are the organizations that organizations should should essentially partner with, right? I, I know we're not in a good state 
in SCA today. But I think part of the the, the roadmap that um, uh, consumers of, of SCA should should pursue is knowing that SCA is not perfect and choosing a vendor that truly understands that supply chain is 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 where it's at. This is the problem, and this is our roadmap to get there. Yeah, it's, you've really opened my eyes here, Steve. To uh, I did not realize that the SCA market was as immature as it actually is. And so I would have, if you would have asked me at the beginning before you said anything, hey, how mature is this as a market? I would have said, ah, you know, it's it's not brand new. It's somewhere making its way towards middle of the road. And it sounds like a lot of these tools are still have a long way to go. They do. I mean, that's why I was, you know, I had some, I had a lot of requirements because I have a lot of expectations because where I'm currently at, that's kind of the reality. And, um, you know, I went in there knowing that not a single solution was going to meet my requirements, but I, I, I came away with, um, I came away realizing that, you know, we've, we've come a long way in the last five, six years, whatever it's been, but we've got a tremendous amount of, of, of road to get ahead and putting vendors in a leader's category isn't helping. Uh, it, it's really not. Um, I, do I would encourage any organization that is looking for SCA solutions to really do a due diligence, to really do their own bake-off in their, their, their own environment, and to really ask themselves the, the questions about what they actually care about, right? Some organizations may not care about pedigree and provenance because they use the open source components as is. Uh, maybe they have a policy that they actually allow their developers to contribute back. That is phenomenal. But most organizations, that's, that's not reality. Um, so asking yourselves, getting with the security team, the legal team, uh, maybe the compliance teams, the audit teams, asking them what is it that we as an organization care about and coming up with a list of requirements and capabilities that you're looking for. And you'll probably come down a similar path to, to what I did um, in realizing that you kind of need multiple solutions today. That's kind of a scary proposition to say that you're going to have to go with multiple just because enterprise tools are never cheap. And yeah. if you have to 2x or 3x, but ultimately it comes down to how do you make sure you have the best intelligence and you're able to make the best decisions based on your third-party software. And so I, I think this problem is big enough to, to, to merit whatever it takes because we've seen – like you started with this conversation about how prevalent these libraries and components and things are. No, I mean, the number I've seen, I don't know if you've, if you've heard this, you probably have a, even a, maybe a more updated number, but the number I've seen thrown around is somewhere around 90% of code in a product or in an application is actually coming from the components that sit underneath it. And you're lucky if you're writing 10% of your own custom code. Yeah, yeah, and that's really largely dependent on the the type of application and the ecosystem. Uh, you know, npm is notorious for that. Um, Java's you know not quite as bad, uh, but it, you know it's definitely ecosystem specific too. But yeah, I've I've heard you know eighty five to ninety as well. So that's kind of um, kind of the norm, I think, uh, and that's kind of the the. Why, why we're talking about this, and, and, and thanks for having me on again after, you know, after a year and a half. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of these security issues that is, on the surface, it's an elementary problem to solve. But when you actually 
you know, dive deep and, and, and try to figure out exactly why this is a problem. Um, and, and looking at the capabilities, it, it becomes a lot more complex. Um, and you, you are often in a situation where you're, you're looking for a solution to a problem and there isn't one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's the I mean the enterprise complexity of this really does lead to making this a lot harder problem to solve. And I, and I'll give you an example from my company's perspective here. So we write code on on one framework and everything we do is in that framework in that ecosystem. And so we have a pretty good system to break the build multiple ways if we end up with some type of vulnerable third-party library. Or, or component that's in it, and so I feel like we've got we've got a pretty good solution. I think we've got a pretty good answer to it, but it's only we can only say that because we have a very simple, single single threaded ecosystem here. Like we don't have like the average enterprise has everything, and so you're trying to build a solution that that solves Java, C sharp, maybe C and C plus um, plus. I mean, they still use libraries and those maybe PHP. You know, I mean, there's there's 20, or 20 other things we could add on that list. And so, um, yeah, definitely a complex problem. Yeah, and let me just go through the list of other things just real quickly because I, yeah. I know we wanted to talk about a few other things. But, you know, having a security policy and being able to enforce that policy is was, was kind of important to me. Uh, being able to reprioritize the risk of some of the findings, like if something was marked as critical, but that method may, may not necessarily be used, or maybe it's used, but it's used in a safe way, uh, being able to classify that. Um, one thing that I will caution uh, in this space, and it's on the marketing websites of a few of the commercial vendors, um, is the data flow exploitability. Right, being able to identify that method and whether or not it's actually used in your application, be very, very cautious with that. Use it as a risk prioritization tool, not as a way to to not fix something. Because I will tell you from experience that it doesn't work. Um, it will tell you when something is confirmed exploitable, but the lack of a confirmed data flow does not indicate a safe component usage, uh, especially when an application has multiple languages, when it's a polyglot application. And guess what? Static analysis doesn't work that well across languages. Even something like Fortify that's been you know, doing this for years, and this is their sole job, it's really difficult. Um, so having SCA solutions do this... Um, Use it for risk prioritization, um, and, and that's all. Yep. Um, component onboarding, right? Having having that golden repository or, or blessed set of components was was really important. Um, reporting integrations and, and really looking then at the effectiveness. Um, you know, how effective is the tool in terms of the integrations with how, how your organization actually produces and consumes software, um, and then. Is it effective in actually identifying the the vulnerabilities that you care about? Uh, so, what we did in in my bake off is we we took uh, five different applications that represented a, um, a realistic view of our entire enterprise, and we put them through the um, you know we analyzed each of those five applications, and then uh, we took all that raw data 
and um, you know, using some some Python and some some data uh, science wizardry, uh, we were able to determine uh, which solutions were. Um, you know, we're providing the, the better intelligence. Um, this was actually the first time that dependency track, uh, my open source project, was actually evaluated against uh, anything else commercially, at least to my knowledge anyway. And it did really well. I, I was really surprised. I was, I was very happy about that. Uh, it did surprisingly well. But, um, you know, there were, there were a few commercial vendors that, that had really good data science teams, uh, one in particular. Uh, so look at how effective, you know, that intelligence, what your results actually are. Um, and let's see, what were some of the other things that I cared about? Oh, uh, the, the age of the component, right? Uh, how old is it? Open source policies should probably have... Um, uh, you know, somewhere in there uh, where, you know, you accept components that are maybe three, maybe five at the most years old and anything less than that or anything more than that should just, you know, flat out be denied uh, in case of, you know, maybe make exceptions on rare occasions. But, um, you know, the age of the components, security researchers aren't looking at these old things anymore. They're looking at the newer things. They're looking at the popular things. Um just because something is 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 old and may not necessarily be new findings attributed to it uh, doesn't mean it's it's not um, it's not exploitable uh, and because they're open source the people who are looking at this would be your adversaries not necessarily the security researchers so it's you know there's a lot more adversaries than researchers in my opinion hmm. um, the health of the project you know, we talked about that briefly. You know, are they accepting pull requests? Are they, um, you know, uh, are they, here, here's a good one. Um, what types of issues um, are, does the project uh, seem to be um, uh, notorious for producing? Like if we were talking about CWEs, what kind of weaknesses uh, does the project um, have over time? And if it's the same sort of weaknesses, well, then maybe they have an architectural problem with that project, right? Um, so looking at the project health is, is really important to me and looking at what the component does. Um, what does, is it an XML parser? Is it a persistence layer? Uh, because if I'm adding yet another XML parser to my code, I already have two. I don't need another one. Um, why would I, you know, increase my, my attack surface unnecessarily uh, when doing that? Um, and that kind of goes into the, just the amount of components. Uh, choosing the, the best component from fewer suppliers because as applications grow over time and your component usage uh, expands over time, if you have a development team that it has time box constraints, their ability to maintain um, component hygiene over the course of that application's lifecycle will diminish as more and more components are introduced into that application. So choose the fewer components, choose the best quality components, and look at the function of the component and try not to duplicate when necessary. Wow. This is a great list of potential things and so what i'm going to do here is i'm going to read them back to you and see i'll, I'll give you kind of <laughs> because we we uh went off on a couple of tangents which was great in the middle of this i was responsible for a couple of them so that's why i said they were great um but 
just I'm going to kind of resummarize your list and, and make sure I've got it correct. And so the first one on your list was have an accurate inventory of third-party code in an application. Uh, whether they're using the binary approach or the manifest approach, it still gets you to a maybe. And so that's a question you need to ask. Um, second one was build environment support. Make sure they have support for the environments that your your build process is relying upon. The tools you're using should work with this SCA tool. Uh, make sure they use some type of package management. And you as a, a an organization have to do have a package management approach, but also make sure the tool supports that. Uh, vulnerability analysis of the individual components, license analysis, determining whether the component's out of date, is it an end-of-life or end-of-sale status, um, ingesting the BOM formats, whether that is Cyclone DX or SPDX or one of the other standards out there, make sure the tool actually does that. Um, see if it or, or consider whether that tool can determine or read out on the pedigree or provenance of the component. So if a developer uh, forks an existing component, are you going to lose all traceability at that point, or are you able to keep keep tracking that based on the original component? Uh, security policy, does it have the ability to enforce a security policy? Do you have the ability, does it give you the ability to reprioritize the risk ratings? Because we, we know that there always are going to be errors. It's never going to be your organization may have different risk tolerances or different interpretations of particular things. Um, you gave a, a caution about data flow exploitability as a feature. So just be on the lookout for what they say about that and take a really close look to see if it uh, actually does what you say. Um, the, com- the component component onboarding process, how, do, how does the tool handle that? Um, how does it measure effectiveness and reporting? Uh, what's the effectiveness of the intelligence they have about those components? Do they have a big team who's tracing down all the new information about components or are they relying on some public source? And then the tool should be able to determine the age of the component, the health of the project, even what the component does. Is it duplicating some other existing capability that is somewhere else inside the application? That yeah. was 19 things on my list here, Steve. Okay. <laughs> I love that, it, that, that was my initial requirements. <laughs> that was the initial. Wow. That was the initial requirements. I, if, you, if you talk to some organizations, I mean, they're going to want, you know, what the developer's IDE was, what the compiler flags were, and all kinds of other things that uh, are also part of the supply chain, you know, conversation. But, yeah, those, those were basically my initial requirements. Yeah, that's a great, uh, it's a great list, and hopefully it'll help those that are looking to purchase SCA solutions and maybe a vendor or two will listen in here and, and pull out a list of requirements from it. <laughs> but yeah, I encourage, uh, because of my lack of time, if anybody wants to go forth and start documenting this, uh, I, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to quickly touch on this Cyclone and Cyclone DX and this whole idea of SBOM. And so now that we have a good idea as far as the things we should be looking at in an SCA solution, let's just talk for a minute or two about SBOM. And first of all, what is SBOM? So just software bill of material, it's a, it's a statement of fact. It's, um, it's a document that, you know, typically machine-readable document that tells you exactly what's in it. It's a, it's a, um, a list of ingredients 
um, uh, back of a food label type of thing. Um, it, it does not talk about the health of those components, only what's in it. So if you are allergic to Apache struts, well, you will know, <laughs> right? <laughs> so <laughs> I was just, I was seeing that on a t-shirt. I am allergic <laughs> to Apache struts. It's- Exactly. Um, but that's really what we're talking about. Um, you know, the, the U.S. federal government has, has actually done a phenomenal job um, uh, kind of highlighting the, the need for, for S-bombs in general. Um, Alan Friedman, who's got uh, part of NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Infrastructure Administration, uh, there's multiple working groups, um, myself and others um, are, are on these groups, um, we're, and we're trying to, to come up with, you know, what what is an S-bomb and, and what things it should be, uh, what, what should be in it, what are the use cases, uh, that sort of thing, and, and trying to come up with some documentation to, to sell to others. Um, but it, it's really just, a, at the end of the day, it's just a, a list of ingredients, uh, and the, the federal government has done a, a phenomenal job kind of uh, marketing that uh, as such. Um, likewise, the, the dependency track project actually has been a, a, an S-bomb first approach uh, since the project actually started, uh, but f- more formally in 2017, even before the NTIA initiative was actually happening. But uh, it, it's literally a so Cyclone DX is literally just one of the many. Uh, there's a couple different uh, uh, formats. Um, SPDX started out doing a license and um, and uh, intellectual property type of compliance, copyright compliance. Uh, there is the SWID or software ID spec. Uh, for whatever reason, it's being um, pushed by by NIST, the NBD folks, uh, quite heavily. Uh, but that actually came from a that also came from a license perspective. But it was more of an entitlement. Uh, both of those specifications are kind of bolting on security uh, in another types of capabilities uh, into their their specifications. Cyclone DX actually started out just doing a security-only uh, approach. Okay. Uh, I looked at SPDX, and I didn't even know about SWID because it's behind the NISO paywall. But I looked at SPDX in 2017, and it just it wasn't there. And um, it, it was also a very slow-moving um, – um, it, it's not necessarily like a, a – it's, it's run actually more like a standard, right? Like an actual – standard rather than like an open source project um and i needed a a solution like yesterday right so you know i couldn't wait necessarily for a standard to eventually in in several years actually morph into something that i could use i needed something you know in 2017 so that's why cyclone dx actually became a thing and I, i did it i did it as a non OWASP project uh for a reason i wanted to separate that away from dependency track as much as possible and today it's really interesting there's literally thousands of organizations using cyclone dx today uh some of which are, are using it without dependency track at all they're they you know they've got their own things that they're doing and they're using cyclone dx because it's a lightweight and it's security first um, so as a specification, I'm actually really su- happily, you know, surprised at how well it's doing. Um, but Cyclone DX is really the basis for, you know, what dependency track is, is all about. And so if I was just to summarize then what an S-bomb and the Cyclone DX 
being a an instance of an S bomb. The benefit that this this provides to the industry is we just get a common format to describe an individual component that we can all agree on, we can all implement it, and then your intelligence that you, if you provide me with some information about a component, and I can ingest it in a standard format, I don't have to. It's just an easy way for us all to talk to each other. Yeah. So uh, two really simple use cases for this, right? I I am an organization. I'm looking to acquire, um, you know, a piece of soft, procure a piece of software, and I'm going to ask that vendor for their software bill of materials, right? If they okay. can produce that to me, I know that there's a certain level of maturity in their organization because they were able to produce that in a machine-readable format. Hopefully, it's SPDX. Hopefully, it's Cyclone DX and not some PDF or something. If it's a PDF or Excel spreadsheet, um, you know, we've got other problems to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> um, because that 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 unfortunately that represents a, a lack of maturity in that that other organization. So that's that's one you know for due diligence. But coming back to that modified Tomcat example, right? Um, if you got if you're looking at it from a binary perspective, well, you you think it is this one thing, even though it's this modified version of of Tomcat. If you're looking at it from the manifest, you're kind of blind because now you don't know what it is. Um, but it, the development team. They know what it is. So if they're actually producing a bill of material in their build and they can correct it during the build so that, you know, if, if you're using like Apache, um, I'm sorry, uh, the Ma- uh, Maven assembly plugin, for example, to do your packaging, you could, for example, very easily create your bill of material in your, in your Maven uh, lifecycle and then simply correct whatever things that you already know in advance to be true and produce an accurate bill of material. Right, so instead of guessing with current SCA solutions, you could actually have the development team actually tell you what they're using, uh, and then use that as your source of what you're going to uh, analyze. It's a much cleaner approach, in my opinion. Yeah, because it's coming from those who know what's actually in the software solution versus a machine trying to take its best guess based on what could be faulty data that it's looking right. at. Yeah. yeah. So it's just another way of looking at the problem. And, and I look at this space as, you know, I don't think necessarily one approach is better than the other. There is a tremendous amount of value for binary uh, analysis. There's a tremendous amount of value for, for manifest analysis. Uh, binary is really good for, um, you know, identifying those things that maybe even copied and, and pasted from, from other things, right? Whereas manifest really lends itself to being able to test early and often, think, you know, GitHub pull requests and, and these sorts of things. And SBOMs is also a really good way to analyze. So I, yeah, I see three different uh, complementary ways that organizations should approach the, um, you know, how they analyze their components because each of these three ways has value. Definitely, I see that as well, and that's hopefully the the way the industry will go here. Is these tools will support multiple? They'll do binary, they'll do manifest, they'll do SBOM, and then they'll be able to give you close to a hundred percent. We're never going to say that you're at a hundred percent, but they'll get cl- as close to a hundred percent as they can to say, "Hey, here are the actual vulnerabilities based on all of these types of information we've looked at to determine what this component actually is." Right, right, right. Now. Even though we we talked about the SCA space as you know having a a long way to go, um, I, I did have a, a couple of conversations with a few vendors, uh, two vendors 
specifically that had really impressive roadmaps. So they 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 definitely know you know more about the problem space than what they're developing for, uh, and they do have roadmap items to to address a lot of what we we just talked about. Uh, so there is you know hope around uh, along the horizon. Uh, it's just not going to get there overnight. You know that's why when I say you know go in with these requirements, go in looking at a capabilities based approach, knowing that you're not going to get them uh, right away. Uh, because you need to choose that vendor, uh, that solution that you're going to partner with um, that knows supply chain and, and actually has a roadmap item to address all your capability concerns. Yeah, that's great. This is giving us a lot to think about here. And I know we were we wanted to talk about dependency track updates and things like that. Give us a 60-second version of what's what's happened in the world of dependency track lately. Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, it's it's kind of taken off. It's it's a life of its own. It's got its own website, dependencytrack.org. Um, it's you know, I passed 150,000 Docker uh, you know polls uh, recently, uh, so it's being used by thousands of orgs. Um, I, I did the bake off between dependency track because if I'm spending thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on commercial SCA things, I need to be able to justify the cost. And surprisingly, it, it actually performed almost. It actually performed identical, uh, nearly identical to one of the commercial SCA offerings. So, yay! Um, <laughs> so that's why do 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 your research. Um, but the project is going really, really well. Used by thousands of orgs. Uh, some really interesting roadmap items coming along. Some project health. Some other types of analysis that we're doing. And you know, if you're into this space, if you're into security, um, you know, we're always looking for contributors. So if you if you've got some spare cycles and you know some Java, um, you know, definitely give our project some some consideration. Yeah, and uh, I can I can definitely say that I mentioned dependency check and dependency track all the time when folks ask me about SCA. I always tell them to start there. I said start there and see because from what I've seen and in, in, in my own testing. Dependency check and dependency track kind of working in tandem are as good as anything that's out there from my perspective. And so um, I want to thank both you and Jeremy, Steve, for your all the effort you put into this. And but people, I, I, we should have said this at the beginning, but dependency check, dependency track, these are OWASP open source projects. Jeremy and Steve are not buying yachts and things as a result of these awesome tools they've created. They're doing it for the good of the industry, the good of the community. And so um, we'll never be able to thank you enough, but I just want to say it anyway, because you're making a huge sacrifice to do it. And um, we really appreciate what you do. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we can push, you know, have something just good enough where we're actually pushing the commercial SCA vendors to innovate just a little bit more and to address some of these other capability concerns. But, uh, but yeah, we, we do it because we love it. And, um, you know, we, we don't have big yachts, but we, we do have generous employers. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. Our intro music is 8-Bit Kung Fu by Born and TJ. And our outro music is Southern Delight by Stefan Kartenberg. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at www.securityjourney.com slash application dash security dash podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at EdgeRoute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.